into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Greetings, the motherfucking damned. Welcome to Pod Damn America, the gothic socialist podcast for idiots. Um, hi, this is Jake. Uh, today I have a, a great guest, um, a, uh, a long time coming, I think, uh, highly requested. Welcome to the show, Tim Faust. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Pod Damn America. Ah, um, the boy is back in town. As That's they say. right. <laughs> uh, I am a socialist. I am a goth, and I am an idiot. So I'm glad to be uh, in good company. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> um, hey, uh, so if you guys don't know Tim's work, um, uh, Tim is the author of a new book uh, that I'm hearing great things about that I'm about to dive right into after this podcast called Health Justice Now. Uh, single pair and what comes next. Can you tell me a little bit about um, what this book is about? Why, you know, why the sure. book, etc.? So I'm a single pair advocate, and I can talk about what that means in a little bit. But right now, there aren't any good books written like in normal person, regular language that talk about what insurance is and why we have it and why it's bad and why you feel fucked over and what single payer is in contrast. Like, what is single payer? What does that mean? What is Medicare for all? But then kind of even more importantly, I think, what lies beyond that? Like, um, we understand that healthcare happens outside the hospital. Like, the food you eat affects your healthcare. So how do we really conceive of health as something that happens more than just what happens when you're in a hospital? And so I put together a book that I think explains all of those um, in a short little package has a couple of references to professional wrestling and uh, other dumb <laughs> things that I enjoy. And uh, I hope, I think, is a enjoyable little read about healthcare and health policy. Cool. Um, all right, right off the bat, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think we kind of probably have the same approach to um, making things very accessible, I guess, um, because, um, you know, like, uh, like literally we were just saying or before we turned these mics on, I mean, like a joke about this podcast being you know for idiots or whatever but it's it's like uh, yeah it's because i the way like what you just said was i need this i would explain this the way i need it to explain to me right right um Um, i mean health policy doesn't need to be complicated we've just made it complicated and people get paid because it's complicated to make it more complicated right um but the fundamentals of how healthcare works how insurance like being a doctor is really complicated. Being a nurse is really complicated. Being like a home health worker is really complicated. Uh, bodies are just these big bags of goo we barely understand, and making them hurt less is like a really tough process, but the art and the science of paying for it isn't that complicated. We've just made it really abstract and difficult and weird, and that's where people kind of tune out. So, so this, is, this is an attempt to elucidate, to make clear uh, what the fuck is going on. Yeah, and once you understand what the fuck is going on, you kind of understand why, how you're getting fucked over by it. Which Absolutely. leads us to, you know, this health justice movement, this whole Medicare for all thing. Um, one thing that I've enjoyed listening to you on other podcasts do is um, describe the material, like, historical explanation of how we sort of arrived at the ACA and then, you know, now where we're going. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, just, like, 
where the current system we have came from, the, sure. the post-World War II stuff. People like to insist that healthcare in America is so complicated and so old. It's an institution. We can't bother like changing it. It's kind of entrenched in America. But that's false. This thing is like uh, one or two generations old. Um, so healthcare in the U.S. used to be rationed entirely by how much money you had and what race you were. If you were a white person with a lot of money, you could pay for a private doctor to come to your home and, and give you health care. Yeah. If you were a poor white person, you could go to the poorhouse, um, which was a huge fucking like place of suffering and, and, and pain. Like I'm not saying that as if that's good. Yeah. Um, the poorhouse was like you had to work your ass off, and you got maybe like the scraps of what the doctors had left over, or really shitty um, palliative care. Um, if you were black or brown, you didn't get shit, or you had a, a blacks-only poorhouse, which was even worse, just unimaginable, uh, un unimaginable agony. But healthcare was rationed by race and income. Um, eventually, we, we, we integrated um, a, couple of, a couple of clinics, but not many. Uh, it, 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 it took a long time. But up until, really, um, World War II, you were kind of on your own as far as what you what do you got health-wise? You, you had to pay everything out of pocket or you were just SOL. Um, Pre-World War II, Baylor down in Waco, um, which is uh, in Texas. Um, Waco, as they call it. Waco, Waco. That's, where, uh, that's, of course, where the famous cult massacre was. Yep. Um, and it's home to another cool thing, which is the birthplace of insurance. Um, a local hospital put together an arrangement with school teachers in Waco where they could pool together their money and receive health care at a discount from the hospital. They got guaranteed inpatient admission for, I think, 25 bucks, which is a lot of the time, but a lot less than paying out of pocket. Um, they kind of banded together the first kind of little insurance market. And this model took off. Um, the hospital wanted this because that way they could survive the depression by having guaranteed income and guaranteed patients. Otherwise, they'd have just empty hospital beds and go out of business. Teachers wanted this because that way they could afford to go see the doctor when they needed, when they needed to. Um, so it's better for them. And this model really took off across the U.S., during World War II, there was a wage freeze. Uh, the government said you couldn't give people more than a certain quantity of money for their work. Um, but the IRS made an exception for health insurance. If you gave somebody insurance, it was not counted as income. Um, so you could get around, get around the wage freeze by offering your workers insurance, making your job seem more interesting, seem more palatable, uh, be a better deal, and people would come work for you on your pickle assembly line or whatever the fuck they are making in the 40s. Uh, and then it just kind of stuck that way. We kind of built this bond between employers, employees, and insurance that has existed just because of this for the past 70 years. Right. Um, so we kind of built up this big peripheral market around how do employers provide insurance. If you don't have employers, can you buy insurance privately? Um, again, these things were still uh, segregated by, by race. It wasn't until Medicare, which is a public insurance program that was developed in the 60s, um, forced the integration of hospitals in the South that we finally saw um, the reduction of segregation of care. It still exists right. uh, today. The Great Society. Um, right. Johnson. But, but um, it's, it's, it was severely lessened by the forced integration of hospitals uh, by, by Medicare. But it kind of, we built this thing piecemeal by piecemeal. It turns out that old folks and poor folks are sick more often and more expensive to insure. So private insurance companies don't want to insure them. So the government picks up the bill and builds programs like Medicare or Medicaid to treat old folks and poor folks respectively. Um, to, because otherwise private insurance companies would, 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 would kick them to the curb, and in fact do kick them to the curb. So we kind of have this big spider web, this big constellation of different healthcare providers, public and private, it leads us to uh, 2012 and the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act looked at all these problems and said, oh man, 
private insurance is doing a really bad job of taking care of vulnerable people. If you don't have a job, or if your job doesn't give you insurance, if you work at a pizza place and the guy, that guy doesn't insure you because he's, he's an asshole, like you're just kind of left behind. The answer, had posited, is to give just a shit ton of money to private insurance companies in this big hope that they would play nice and insure more people and make things fair. And that, of course, uh, has not happened. Right. 10% of Americans are uninsured. I think a fifth to a third of Americans are underinsured, which means that they have insurance, but it's just too expensive to use. They basically don't have any kind of meaningful insurance. Right. And that's even people who are, even if you have employer-sponsored insurance, you're still looking at a $4,000 to $6,000 deductible, which is how much you got to spend before you can even use your insurance in the first place. Like, the whole thing sucks. If you've got a lot of money and never go to the doctor, you're doing fine, but you were doing fine in the first place. Um, it, this whole like arrangement is this artificial. It's like when you uh, build a monastery and you bulldoze a wall and build a new room in its place, and then bulldoze another wall and build a room in, in its place, and then build a new wall somewhere. You've got this big, totally artificial honeycomb of uh, health insurance, public and private, employer-sponsored and individual, and uninsurance existing all in the same space. And the whole thing is fundamentally uh, pretty stupid and fucks over a lot of people. Right, yeah, it's a big patchwork, um, and it's uh, it's funny that it's being defended as if it's this uh, system that it makes any sense at all. Um, obviously, it's being defended by people who have an interest in making money off of it, and that's the whole fucking problem. Right. It, and it doesn't even work on its own merits. Right. Um, America uh, spends the most money of any other uh, first world country in healthcare. Uh, and receives the least amount of health care in return. Americans go to the doctor less often than folks in other countries. We just get charged way, way more. Think, for example, that insulin costs $400 a vial. Or think of uh, Martin Shkreli, that de- uh, de- that de- fellow New Yorker, Martin Shkreli, right, right. Um, jacking up the price of uh, Daraprim, I think, like, 1,400% overnight just because he could. No one could stop him. Yeah. We're paying way, way more for a smaller quantity of health care. Uh, um, and the whole thing's uh, bankrupting itself. Getting away with it because it looks like Brandon Wardell. Um, yeah, and so uh, obviously something that's interesting to me about the uh, health justice movement and Medicare for All is that it is widely popular. And it's widely popular, you know, probably not because the majority of the country that is polling in favor of it has, uh, you know, read all this history or that they're hardcore ideological people and they're fed up with, um, you know, the 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 capitalistic nature of the private healthcare system. It's just, uh, I mean, it, there's an unel- inelastic nature to healthcare, right? And so it's, uh, it doesn't take a whole lot for people to look at the system and go, well, this doesn't work. And I would like it a different, I would like a better system. So it's this great gateway into explaining socialism to people or, um, you know, it's sort of a land bridge to get, uh, to, to more radical politics. Um, and so you've been traveling the country and, uh, doing presentations or doing talks mm-hmm. about all this stuff, talking to everyday people whose, you know, whose experience with this has probably led them to throw their hands in the air and go, something else, right? We need something else. And that's right. why there's this Medicare for All movement. Can you tell me a little bit about your uh, your travels and uh, what you get out of it? Yeah, totally. So um, for the past two years, I've been driving my 2002 Honda CRV, which has 300,000 miles. I'm very proud of that. Um <laughs> This car just won't quit around the U.S. And I, the, the routine that I, that I describe is that I, I wake up every morning, I drive six hours, I give a little talk about what we have, what we want, and kind of what, what, what comes next. 
and then people just come up to me and tell me the worst things that have ever, ever happened to them in their entire life. People have lost their kids because they were too poor to afford the bills that the hospital charged them. They couldn't afford the co-pays. They couldn't afford the deductible. Um, people are watching their kids get born into six-figure debt because um, they got a raise at their job and didn't report it to the ACA in time and lost their insurance and didn't know it. People are losing their wife or their husband um, because they couldn't afford, they, their insurance wasn't good enough, and they thought the hospital wasn't giving them the care they needed because, of, because they, they weren't going to make a profit off of it. Uh, I'm talking to folks that have to trade their insulin um, through Facebook groups with folks across the U.S. because uh, their insurance plans cover the insulin that the other person needs and vice versa. Just everyone is sick and tired of being sick and tired. Everyone's being fucked over in some way or will be fucked over in some way in the future. Yeah. There's this phrase, temporarily able-bodied, that I like a lot, which is, we all think we're doing fine until we get into a car accident, or we get cancer, or our girlfriend gets cancer, or whatever, and then we understand how frail and tragic the body can be. We're not safe in our own bodies. That's why we have insurance in the first place. Really, like, central to this issue is just the fact that we're all going to die. <laughs> right. You know, and not in a quick manner, either, you know? Absolutely. We're, we, and it's... It's entirely impossible to afford your own health care out of pocket. No one can afford health care out of pocket, yeah. except for like multimillionaires. And honestly, fuck them. I don't give a shit. Um, so we pool together money from everybody and spend it on building insurance pools. And that, that's like a good thing that makes sense. Insurance as a concept makes sense. Private insurance is a very bad way of achieving that goal. Um, and so I try to explain this to folks, um, what single payer might look like, what private insurance looks like. And then I honestly just listen to a lot of folks and, and, and their stories. And so in writing this book, I tried to include, I mean, I did include a lot of other people's stories. Because like, I can talk about like, my health conditions, and that's like, interesting to a small extent, but I can't talk about having a rare genetic health condition. I can't talk about being disabled. I can't talk about having a miscarriage. Um, I can't talk about uh, um, getting an abortion. I can't talk about being trans. And so I put a lot of those stories, uh, I think, in context in a, in, in a section of this book. Um, but yeah, that's my, that, that's my tour. It's cool. a, a library of human suffering. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it's interesting to me because I get a lot out of touring, too, and I, it definitely does something to my mind that I think is really positive. I really enjoy it. I do feel like it shakes me out of a little atomized bubble that I'm living in, And uh, but I, you know kind of do the opposite of what you do which is i go around and i uh i i try to uh i guess if you want to look at stand-up comedy on some sort of clinical level you're trying to manufacture happiness which is a, a pretty gloomy thing to think about but um <laughs> you know but um connecting with people after the shows though it's the exact same thing I and mean, people listen to this podcast come up to me all the time and it's like it's corny or whatever but it is so heartening and so makes you feel so connected to people um i did a uh, a talk last night with a uh, someone i'm gonna have on this podcast later p moskowitz wrote a book called the case against free speech and uh someone came up to me i forgot your name i'm sorry but a listener to the show and uh we had a great conversation they told me about how they listened to this podcast when they were going through yada 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 it was great stuff right very heartwarming i also had a guy who was pacing around behind her it was an old white guy with a polo shirt <laughs> who was waiting to debate me about free speech and immediately started it just turned into um him rattling off police statistics about uh mike brown it was terrible um <laughs> but anyways thank you for coming up and talking to me after the show and you know what that the guy thank him too if he he took all the time to come out to see me and uh, argue with me well all right you gotta give him that i guess um, it's a button a seat you know <laughs> yeah yeah um 
Um, but anyway, I guess uh, I want to go in a couple different directions with interviewing you about this. Um, the first one is like kind of a big ideological thing. Um, understanding like why it is pretty much um, it's a situation where like we've reached a um, you know socialism or barbarism. We've reached sort of a dead end with this stuff, or this has to happen. Um, is I mean, the way I arrived at it, I guess, is like, you know, as a young person, I, me and my friends would just casually give fake names at the ER in Texas when something happened to us because there was just no other option. You'd either be just completely destroyed financially or, um, you know, you'd come up with this clever trick. And I remember it being really funny because, like, the nurses would know we were doing it and they would understand that the system was broken and they would just sort of wink back at us right you're not trying to like scam meds or whatever you're trying to get basic health care yeah i mean it would happen you know when tragedy struck mm-hmm. um and you just had no other option right and i remember being a young person and thinking at some point and this is like a really i think common millennial experience um that you know you're living like this but it's because you're young and eventually there's going to be this plateau that hits eventually you're going to be you know economically stable and you're going to maybe achieve the status of having one of these jobs that are very like validating and that come with the um the uh benefits the health Mm -hmm. insurance that sort of signifies well you're an adult now and you have this thing but you get older and you either you know that doesn't happen like you either just never achieve one of those jobs or you do get the insurance but it is like you said a form of insurance that's so expensive you can't really use it right um and so i think that like there's this funny thing about being a millennial where you know we kind of feel like um like we're gonna like the apocalypse is coming there's this impending like doomish feeling um and so i think that's why you know our generation um radicalized all around the same time and um because uh what am i trying to get at because because like the you know we're reaching this sort of late capitalistic thing where like um you know the system is not going to work you can't make the same argument that an older generation made where you know we'll just write it out the economy will come back um some sort of form of uh health insurance will eventually work for you it's it's not working um also we've given private insurance 50 years to give it its best shot and here's the result like this is private insurance working the only way it works more is if we subsidize it more we got to bail out insurance over and over and over again by either sloughing off people who are too expensive to insure people who are sick and poor etc and putting them on public insurance um or we got to give them big cash transfers like we do with the ACA like this is how and this is how private insurance works it can't even fucking get the job done yeah and um it's sort of a uh, the central issue in you know these the presidential race. Um, you know, it's it's something that's being talked about all over the country. And um, can it, I describe single payer and how it stands in contrast? Please do. Okay. So right now, I'll give you the top line and then kind of walk you through how it looks. The top line is uh, single payer is a healthcare model in which all healthcare needs for all people are paid for whether they're medical or mental or dental or vision or long-term care, and are free to use for everyone. We just pool together all the money we're currently spending and use it to take care of everybody long-term. Here's how it looks. Right now, if you want to go to the doctor because you're sick or because your kid is sick, you got to have insurance. If you don't have insurance, game over, you lose. But you gotta, if you do have insurance, then you got to find a doctor who's in-network. 
Networks are these arbitrary and invented things that insurance companies have, uh, which doctors uh, you can go to and which doctors you can't. So you've got to find a doctor that's in the network. So you go to the doctor. Then you've got to pay the copay for the office visit. You've got to go to the doctor and pay some quantity of money just to get into the door. And that can be a flat fee, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 500 bucks, or it can be a percentage of how much the, uh, uh, the doctor um, charges your insurance company. And then after that, you've got to hope you've hit your deductible. Otherwise, you've got to pay the bill your insurance company sends you at the end of the day. You're responsible for all costs until you spend $5,000 or $7,000, or if you're super lucky, $2,000 a year. Um, that's how private insurance works right now. Under single payer, if you're sick, you just go to the doctor. You can go to any doctor that you want, and you can get whatever health care you need, and you leave without paying a bill. And we can do that for a couple of reasons. One, the costs of healthcare right now are very high for artificial reasons. The costs are high because the prices are high. MRI scans in the US cost five times more than MRI scans in Australia. Inpatient procedures like getting surgery cost 40% more than the exact same things when performed in France. Um, hospitals will buy up primary care clinics like your local like GP or your family doctor or whatever and close them down and then use them to charge hospital prices for the same kinds of care. Like you've got costs being jacked up all over the place. Martin Shkreli, another perfect example. Right. And uh, that's because private insurance is unable to reckon with these things. Private insurance companies like Blue Cross and Aetna need hospitals way more than hospitals need Blue Cross or Aetna. So the hospital can say, hey, this thing costs $1,000 now, and Blue Cross just has to say, well, okay, and then pass that cost on to you, the consumer or whatever, right? right. Um, under a single pair, they've got one single insurance company, a publicly owned, publicly funded insurance company that isn't bound by that restraint. It can say, hey, guess what? We did the math, and it turns out a knee replacement costs $8,000 to do. I made that number up. I don't know how much a knee replacement costs. Uh, we, we, we determined that a knee replacement costs $8,000 to do, so we're going to pay $9,000 for a knee replacement. You can take that or you can leave it. And because there is no other game in town, because this insurance company, the single payer, uh, represents 330 million people, the hospitals kind of got to take it. And right. so they make up the cost by downsizing. Like right now, there's a, what is it? There are 10 administrative people for every doctor in a, in a hospital. You've got skyscrapers of tens of thousands of billing agents and people who specialize in billing codes, folks who consultants who find ways to increase the costs of things. And their job is to make costs go up. But their jobs become redundant under single payer. And uh, under single payer, hospitals have one billing code they need to use, or like one billing agency they, they, they got to use. They're billing the Medicare for all, so they know how much things cost. They can reduce that amount of work. And uh, so their costs drastically go down. And uh, uh, we kind of deflate these inflated prices across the board. I think uh, the PERI, which is the Oh, I forgot. I forgot what the, what the acronym stands for. It's a think tank out of Amherst. I'll look it up. Um, policy and nope, blanking on it. Um, some policy and something research institute uh, predicts that a single payer program would cost ten percent less than what we're currently spending now, and would cover everybody in America. So we can spend less money and cover all people in full. That's how incompetent private insurance is. And then on top of that, we get to use all the money that private insurance costs right now, all their marketing costs, all their profit, because their CEOs are making millions and millions of dollars a year and invest that back into healthcare for all people. Right. Like, we understand that like, the things we got to do to bring down healthcare costs long term. 
you got to reopen primary care clinics in rural areas. You got to build community health centers in poor neighborhoods. You got to pay the folks that do the work more money. Right now, there's 1.2 million home health aides where folks that take care of you, if you got a sick friend or a sick kid or a sick parent, and they're getting paid as low as $7.50 an hour in some states. So they can't even afford their own insurance. Um, so we can pay those folks a, a living wage. We can, we can invest in the people that do the work. Uh, and only a single payer can really conceive of these problems. Private insurance is never going to solve these problems. Um, I know I've talked for a minute, but I've got another metaphor. Go for it. Uh, right now, you know that if you're at home and the window breaks, for example, the weather gets in. And if the weather gets in, the heat gets in, the cold gets in, the smog gets in, whatever, uh, you get sick. And if you get sick or if your kid gets sick, you've got to go to the doctor. But if the local clinic was shut down, or if it's far away, then you got to go to the hospital. Uh, and if you got to go to the hospital uh, and you don't have a car, you got to catch a ride from somebody, or you got to take a bus. Yeah, it took a lift to the hospital. Right, that's, that's that's a thing insurance companies sponsor now because ambulance companies are too expensive because yeah. they can get away with it because you don't really get to choose what ambulance you get, and once you're in the ambulance, you can't really like get out. Right. Um, but if you got to take the bus. Or if you got to catch a ride, or if you got to do things something like that, you got to spend all day dealing with the fucking bus. Uh, you got to spend all day getting a ride going to the hospital. If you got to spend all day at the hospital, you can't go to work. And if you can't go to work, you don't get paid. And if you can't get if you don't get paid, you can't afford to fix the window that caused the problem in the first place. And so the answer isn't to make people pay a shit ton of money every time they get sick and go to the doctor, the answer begins with giving folks what they need to fix the goddamn window that caused the problem in the first place. Right. But your private insurance company will never even consider fixing these problems on their own because you're going to change your insurance plan every couple of years and eventually, you know, a law permitting, go on Medicare, Blue Cross or Aetna or Cigna, feel no pressure to provide you with any care that makes you healthy in the long term, right? We just kind of furlough or we just kind of like uh, push that responsibility onto all of us, onto the, the, the public payer, onto, onto the government. But these, these private companies are fully incapable of fixing these problems, of fixing these broken windows, of reopening health care clinics. Uh, they are incompetent at their only jobs. So therefore, it makes more sense to reclaim that, to reuse that money, to take care of all people, to reallocate our spending, to ensure that all people get to live safely in their own, in their own bodies, and uh, invest in the health care infrastructure that we need. Yeah, um, you're describing something that is kind of central to this issue. I think in that, like, um, a lot of times people will say, "Oh, it's going to cost more." You know, your uh, whatever your premium. One part of the situation goes up, and then you know, but the, it's a misleading question because. Um, the overall cost of just being alive will go down, um, especially if you can go to the hospital, you know, earlier uh, when you have a you know a stage one cancer versus stage five or something right. like that um it practically will save you all of that money um it'll work more efficiently and um and, and, and even if it doesn't right like even if it's not if if people for example run make a rush on their primary care clinic and see their family doctor and get way more primary care um and it ends up costing more than how much we spend right now on stage five cancer or whatever. If like there's such a massive imbalance and who gets to receive care that uh, ends up being, uh, we spend more money on primary care, that's like totally chill. It's good right. to spend money in primary <laughs> well, care. It, it, it begs the question, what is the point of our tax money right. to begin with? And 
uh, to argue that it's uh, you know somehow this is an, aggrieve, uh, an egregious misuse of our tax money is sort of comical in America where it's going towards all these fucking tanks and bullshit that right. we don't use anyway. For um, every dollar the government spends on healthcare, it receives four dollars in return. It y- creates jobs. It creates economic activity. Right. For every dollar it spends on war crimes, it loses I think like five cents. Like this is a really like investing in healthcare is a very high return public investment like it it is the right thing to do and it's the economically smart thing to do yeah um and it wouldn't bother me one bit you know to know that my money was going into a system that actually fucking works right Right. um but that question uh so i I guess i think about that and i go well why the fuck is that question being asked to begin with where is this coming from all this criticism of the push for medicare for all so to me that's something that's interesting uh, is the uh, the political part of this the um, the really bad faith arguments that are being thrown against it in uh, you know in Senate races all over the country in smaller races and as far as, as high up as the the fucking presidential race and the theater of the debates and all this shit um, there are, are all these cleverly crafted narratives that are designed to get in people's heads to make them think like this is actually a really bad idea and one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show was to ask you to help me demystify a few of these things I'd love to okay so um, one question that someone asked me was um, and it was very honest and uh, you know not really a bad faith question but I think that uh, you can probably answer it a lot better than I can was um, in a single payer system in Medicare for all um, you, uh, would there still be a private market existing alongside Medicare for all um, why or why not uh, there can't be we uh, and the both of the single payer models both of the single payer bills in Congress prohibit it now, when I say there can't be, I mean there can't be, be duplicative or supplemental insurance. Uh, you can't have an ins- a private insurance plan that does the same thing that the Medicare for All plan does that you can opt into or opt out of or whatever. Uh, that's for a couple of reasons. And any country in the world that has a public uh, single-payer, or has a public option, you could say, or has, has a, a, a public insurer, whenever you permit a private insurance company to exist alongside it, it takes up a hell of a lot of money and only treats people who are wealthy. In South Africa, for example, there's a public insurance model, um, and there's also a private insurance model. And private insurance costs, it offers things like luxury suites. Um, some hospitals contract only with, a, with the private insurer and then charge them more money than they can charge the public insurer. Um, so rich folks tend to buy private insurance and opt out of the public insurance model. And uh, the result is that 46% of healthcare spending in South Africa is spent by that private insurance, uh, but only it only covers 16% of all South Africans, who are disproportionately wealthy and white. Right. It's a virtual reenactment of apartheid. In Australia, you see a similar thing. In, uh, I believe it's the Netherlands, you see a, a private insurance option uh, has resulted in 10% of people in the Netherlands, 10% of the Dutch, uh, being without access to care altogether because of, because of their income. Wherever you permit private insurance to exist alongside uh, uh, public insurance, it weakens the entire model, it takes money out of the risk pool, it lets the rich get something that, the, that everybody else does, doesn't get to have, and it sucks money uh, out of the thing entirely. It weakens the... Uh, just a, a, There's no such thing as a small turd in the punch bowl, you know right, what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, just a little bit uh, can ruin the entire thing for all people. Right. Now, there is, like, accessory insurance that, like, might exist for things that aren't covered under single-payer. Um, for example, cosmetic surgery without 
uh, any medical bearing, uh, a nose job, for example. Maybe there'll be nose job only insurance, um, <laughs> which is like a real thing that, that, that could exist. Sure. And those I don't like, but I don't think you can like make them not exist. Uh, um, that might still exist uh, even under single payer. And there's a difference between, between cosmetic surgery for people who are getting gender reaffirming surgery and people who just like are getting cosmetic things. Right. Nothing wrong with cosmetic surgery, but I don't think it should be covered under a single pair. Right. Same with like there should be a separate system for uh, extreme body modification. Yes. People <laughs> who want to get like light up things in their eyebrows and right. shit. Or like the lizard man. Yeah. Um, Eric, friend of mine. He kicks ass. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just don't think that the uh, lizard mod should be covered. Out, should be covered under under single. Pair. Eric's reg walking into a hospital and cutting in line in front of someone is like primo Republican propaganda against Medicare for all. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you think this gentleman should be covered <laughs> yeah, for yeah. what he needs? Um, but also things like you know, uh, essential oils or whatever. Right. Like at some point you got to draw the line between what's medically necessary and, and, and what's not. Yeah. So uh, I think that. Private insurance that duplicates coverage for uh, what single payer covers um, is not permitted and is not permitted under the, the the two bills in Congress. But this like accessory insurance, I don't think you can legally prohibit. Uh, wherever you permit uh, private insurance to exist, it will ruin the rest of the thing for everybody else. That makes sense, um, and that was well put. Um, it's uh, you say it affects the concept of like the risk pool, right? Yeah. So the risk pool is the idea that some people are riskier to insure than others. People who are sick um, have a higher risk of spending healthcare money this year than people who are not sick, right? Um, people who have um, hepatitis C or hemophilia or HIV AIDS or cancer are more likely, are riskier uh, to have healthcare costs than a 23-year-old who has never had a health problem in their life, right? right? That's the, so the idea of a risk pool is that we pool together all that risk by pooling together all of our money and using the money to take care of the people who need it when, uh, when they need it. Uh, and the larger the risk pool, the wider those costs are spread and the lower the average per person costs, right? You want everybody to be in and nobody to be out because once you begin letting people opt out of the risk pool, it's going to be the, uh, the wealthier and the healthier folks, which means that the remaining pool, think for example of Medicaid, is going to be poorer and sicker and more left behind. Therefore, their risk pool is going to be more expensive and therefore they're more complicated to take care of and their costs go up as, as, as a result. This idea of the universal risk pool is that we all jump into the thing together and right. you get to do it knowing that when you are sick and when you are unwell and when you are expensive, when you get into a bike accident, when you're bored by a cab or whatever, you will also be, ta be taken care of. Yeah, um, and uh, the, the entire point of the risk pool is the, the premise of insurance to begin with, right. is that it's one big and pool. Again, like insurance as a concept is not bad. Insurance is good. It's private insurance that's fucking everything up. Right. Um, another big myth that I think is uh, interesting is, um, you know, people will say um, that... Uh, well, the the feature of our private system is that it's innovative via you know the nature of capitalism, and so if we um, you know nationalize it or do single payer or Medicare or whatever, what we're going to lose is the competitive nature of like cancer researchers or something like that. Um, can you speak to that? Because it sounds like bullshit to me, but right. I need your brain for this. The, so there's, there's, you've got like innovation in insurance, and you've got innovation in production side, like hospitals and, and pharma companies, which is, I think, where the argument usually comes from. First off, on insurance, the primary innovations in the private insurance market are those designed to fix the problems caused by the private insurance market in the first place. Um, it's, mm. They have done nothing new or useful ever. 
and the new things they come out with are ways to compensate for all the things they fucked up to begin with. They're like trying to glue together like all the glasses they've 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 knocked off right. um, the cabinet, and in the process are stumbling into a new batch of glasses that they will then glue together. Then there's innovation in like for example pharma companies, and there's a pretty easy response there. One, pharma companies spend more money on marketing than they do research and development. Um, I think it's like a, a multiple. They spend way more money on R&D, sorry, on marketing than they do R&D. Right. So the real innovation is finding new ways to make us pay more money for drugs. Right. For example, Daraprim's uh, cost, uh, EpiPens now cost several times more than they used to cost uh, even 10 years ago. The woman in charge of that, by the way, is the daughter of a senator, uh, Joe Manchin's daughter. Oh. Um, um, drug companies invent new kinds of drugs. Like, and drug companies will often invent drugs in search of a need. They'll take a drug that currently exists, change one molecule, invent a new drug, and then kind of throw it at the wall to see what it, see what it can do, and then market it for doing that. Right. That's not really innovation. And the things that really make a big difference in like the complicated kinds of healthcare, uh, your cancer drugs, your really innovative public health drugs, come from public research institutions. It's some underpaid or unpaid grad student in a lab somewhere who writes a thesis and then gets the research bundled and sold by the university to a uh, pharmaceutical company at a profit. That's where a lot of the real innovation comes from. And I think this exposes a need in America to public or to make public our health or our, our pharmaceutical research. I think we need a public pharma company that makes generic drugs for every, everybody to use and doesn't sell out at a profit. Right. There's no reason we should let these private companies jack up costs willy-nilly whenever they want to. I mean, a perfect example is the opioid epidemic, right? Like. That's a, the biggest innovation in pharma research in the past uh, 20 years. Yeah, they spent a lot of money on advertising. They made like a jazz record about that shit. Oxy, so MS Contin existed. Uh, MS Contin was OxyContin's, you could say, uh, parent. Mm-hmm. And then in the mid-90s, the patent on MS Contin was going to run out. So they went to the lab, pushed a few buttons, changed MS Contin into o- into OxyContin and then launched a massive, massive, massive marketing campaign. And the result is an epidemic that kills um, dozens of people a day, uh, thousands of, 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 of people a year. That is the primary innovation in the pharmaceutical sector. Right. So if we end up losing that, I say, like, good riddance. Right, yeah. Uh, I guess the the conservative myth being that the innovation is always uh, is motivated in terms of solving problems and curing diseases when in reality the innovation innovation in capitalism only ever can serve to uh you know to just to make more money right um and then you know anyone who gets killed in the process be damned it's right? a by hooker by crook kind of process yeah. they are innovating they're just not innovating in ways that are good for the rest of us right um yeah i guess what they'll try to tell you is like well all these other countries are using our you know our great cancer research or whatever um, is that true? I mean, is that is there a point to that? Like, I, I guess the 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 narrative that gets thrown at us is that um, you know, well, our system may not uh, be, take care of as many people, but like the only reason these other countries that have more universal systems are functioning is they're benefiting from things that are like bubbling out of our innovative research. Um, is that is that true? That has yet to be shown. Yeah. Um. I mean, pharma companies aren't selling drugs for $3 in India that they're selling for $80,000 in the U.S. because they're trying to be, be benevolent in India. They're making a profit there. Right. Um, they're not like... 
it, it, they're not trying to like undercut the pharma market in India or whatever by offering these drugs cheaper than it would cost to afford. They're making money at the end of the day, right? Um, and they're because they're making so, like such because there's such bloated costs in the U.S. Uh, they can afford to have those costs jacked down a little bit or a lot of a, a lot of it actually just through basic negotiation. Right. I mean, like a, a good example is um, the Hep C drug. The Hep C drug, if you are a private insurance company, costs six figures. If you are Medicare and you're not, not allowed to negotiate drugs, but you do get like a benchmark price, it costs $80,000. If you are in the State Department, it costs $24,000. So you've got a 10x spread um, across the prices in the, uh, for, for the Hep C drug in the US. And they're not losing money on the 24 grand either. They're just making way, way more money when they charge it for $200,000. That makes sense. Um let me ask you another question. This is kind of a specific one, so I'm not sure if the, uh, <laughs> if you're going to know this stuff right off the dome. But um, okay, so there's this thing going on in Denver regarding over-the-counter birth control versus uh, the ACA. Uh, Senator Cory Gardner tweeted: "Safe and effective contraception should be available over the counter without a prescription." I'm proud to work with Senator Joni Ernst to drive home the cost of contraceptives and help more women have access to their medications on their time. To which. Someone replied, what Senator Cordy Gardner fails to mention is that over-the-counter birth control without a prescription means you pay out of pocket. The ACA provides copay-free access to birth control prescriptions. This is pretending to care about women while actually driving up profits for the health insurance companies. Can you explain what the hell's going on here to me? Yeah, totally. So basically, it's pay-to-play. Um, sure, the ACA lets you get uh, prescription-free contraception over-the-counter, but only if you are insured in the first place. So if you're a person who isn't insured and you need birth control, you still got to pay out of pocket. You're left behind, basically. Yeah. Um, this means that, in a certain sense, private insurance companies are the ones who benefit from this policy. Because if you want this thing, you got to be in private insurance. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's the long and short of it. Okay. This, this kind of like progressive plan only applies to you if you can afford insurance in the first place. If you can't, Sorry. Like, a real program intended to benefit people who can get pregnant and give them contraception would, sub would have a subsidy program for people who are uninsured. Uh, and until that exists, you are just privileging one class of people who can get insurance or people who can't. Great. Okay. Now it makes sense. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. Um, let's see. Uh, is there anything else really big we should get to before we uh, start talking about something much dumber? I want to talk about health justice as a concept. Please do. My book is called Health Justice Now and not Single Payer Now for a reason. Um, we understand that only a fifth of the things that happen to you, your health outcomes, are driven by what happens to you in a hospital or a doctor's office. Um, a lot of the things that affect your health are things that happen in your regular life. Your housing, your food, your income, things like that. But right now, nobody bears the costs of... Nobody is really invested in making those things better. Medicaid is, because Medicaid has to bear those end-line costs. That's why New York Medicaid invests, not enough, but does invest in affordable housing. Um, or in Indiana, I know they work, they, they work on transit. Um, but nobody right now, in the fragmented private insurance model, really gives a shit about whether you're going to be healthy next year. They care about whether you're healthy right now, or really they care about whether they got to spend money on you right now. But under a single pair, now you are building a single actor that both pays for the costs of you receiving care right now, but also bears the costs of what happens when you don't receive care in the future. Right? Let me put, let me put it to you like this. Um, if your people are getting sick because they don't have a place to live, 
and you die of exposure way faster than you die of stage five cancer. Um, or where they live has mold or water in the walls or it's flammable, it's otherwise unsafe, then really investing in housing is investing in healthcare. And if you wanna bring healthcare costs down long-term, you gotta provide folks with safe, affordable, or even social housing uh, in the long-term. Same with food. If people are getting sick because they don't have access to healthy food to eat, it's not profitable to sell the poor person fresh food and vegetables. And so they're getting diabetes or things that go alongside diabetes like heart failure, then investing in food is a way to invest in long-term healthcare costs. Giving people affordable or free food options and the time, space, and materials to prepare them, that's how you bring your long-term healthcare costs down. This is a vision of a world in which healthcare is much more complicated and intricate and expansive than just you going to the doctor and you getting a shot or you getting a Band-Aid, right? Uh, We understand that um, healthcare outcomes differ not by race, but by exposure to racism. Um, a black man and a white man with the same insurance plan and same amount of money will get different levels of, of quality of care based upon their race. There's been studies done at, uh, uh, I think it was SUNY Downstate. I looked at uh, black men and white men of the same age getting cardiac failure. Black men both got worse care and more bad care than white men. Um, some care is, is, not, is deleterious. Some care is not good for you to, uh, to receive. Some pr- procedures are not good for you to receive uh, than, than white men, even in the same facilities. Right. Uh, so combating racism is a, is, is, a, is, a, is a fight in the fight for health justice and health equity. Same right. with income. Poor folks get worse health care than, than, than rich folks. Poor children die of things rich children don't die of. The men get to, rich men get to live 15 years longer than poor men. Rich women get to live 10 years longer than poor women. This is just how this thing is rigged against us. And so the fight against income inequality, the fight against capitalist exploitation, is also a parallel fight in the fight for health equity. That's what I term the phrase health justice. This kind of all con- all-encompassing idea that all these things are interrelated and all of them have like consequences in our bodies. Uh, the right to be safe or the fear that you are not safe in the body in which you exist. Um, and so a, th- the thir- a third of the book is dedicated to a kind of exploring these concepts. And... Like, that's cool and all. Like, single-payer doesn't solve all these problems, doesn't solve them overnight, um, but only a single-payer can be used to begin addressing these problems. It is our first piece of leverage uh, against this big fucking boulder. It is our first counterattack in a war that is already being waged against us, and uh, private insurance uh, both can't solve these problems, won't solve these problems, but sometimes has caused these problems in the first place. Yeah, goddamn. I love it, man. Um, the picture that seems to come into focus when I think about this stuff is that, like, uh, you know, I think we as a generation are starting to understand um, what uh, what's his face Mike on um, Breaking Bad said. There's a lot of truth in no half measures. Yep. You know, there is. Uh, I. I hesitate to use this word, but there's a bit of a holistic nature to this. The, uh, you know, understanding the reason that health justice is so central to, um, you know, the, the burgeoning socialist movement in this country is that, I mean, health justice is literally, literally your life is on the line. Your life is connected to this thing. So to understand how all of these factors, um, you know, factor into what happens to you when you go to the hospital or, um, you know, or, or don't go (laughs) because you're healthy. Um, it starts to make sense that this can't be a thing that we talk about. Um, like 
isolated on its own. Um, people that are pro-private insurance sort of tend to ideologically think of this as, well, this is just one facet of society. This is this this is a, one business that is not uh, affected and does not affect the other businesses and the other parts of life surrounding it, but it's sort of connected to everything. Yes, these things are all interwoven. And, like, there's nothing that radical about saying this. We all know it. Um, just like it's not, there's nothing radical about single-payer. People generally like it. Yeah. Uh, more than half of Americans like single-payer, and the more they learn about it, the more they like it. Oh, yeah, here's another big myth, uh, the, fo- the funny one that the, the Joe Bidens of the world always throw around, is that people like their private health insurance. No, people like being insured. They don't like their... No one's fucking going to bat for Aetna or Cigna or whatever, right? Like, yeah. No one gives a fuck about their private insurance company. People just like being insured, because if they're not insured, they die. Do you, when you travel around, do you ever get like people that show up and go, "I like my private insurance," that are resistant to this stuff at all? I get a couple of folks who um, are afraid of losing their insurance, and it's pretty easy to explain. Oh no, that's not the case. Like, here's how this thing works. Uh, what's your copay right now? We'll subtract uh, all of your copay from that, and here's here's what what, what you get now. Um, a lot of folks, generally speaking, though, or of folks who use this argument, more folks are concerned about a hypothetical somebody else than they are about themselves. Most people don't like their own insurance plans. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's such a it's just such a ridiculous argument. Nobody likes this shit. Every everyone is pretty aware that it's it's fucked, you mm-hmm. know. Um well that is uh um, that is great. I am always, uh, it's always a, uh, a pleasure to be able to view this stuff through your magnificent wonky brain that understands all sorts of shit that I don't. Thank you. This is how I have fun. This is literally what I do for fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get it, man. Um, well, uh, but there's another thing you do for fun, which I think we should talk about to add a, maybe a little bit of levity to this, uh, uh, this episode where we've, uh, we've gotten a little bit, a little bit smart and a little wonky. Um, tell me about motherfucking party world wrestling. Party World Wrestling is a play about a wrestling league that is also itself a wrestling league. It is the stupidest <laughs> idea we've ever had in our entire life, and we've committed to it uh, until death. Our goal is to party until death. Uh, party World Wrestling is a very irresponsible um, wrestling league that I help run down in Austin, Texas. Hell yeah. Started off, my friend Jared launched a party called Jared Mania 28, because they were turning 28 at, at the time, which makes sense, in which a bunch of folks stood in their living room and shouted and yelled and cut promos. Um, then came Summer, uh, Summer Slam Down or whatever on July 26th, 2014. I remember because I was there. And uh, we built, they built a really fucking shitty ring out of like Home Depot concrete buckets and poles and bungee cords in the backyard and began shoving each other and doing some fake wrestling and like 20 folks were there. And then I came back in October for Slamhane and all of a sudden the ring was a little bit better. It had some uh, mattresses like, on the disgusting ground. Yeah. And uh, there were 60 folks there. And I, was the, I, I, I became the announcer, Timmy Quivers. I put on corpse paint and shout about wrestling. I love it. And then we did a show in, in, in December, and there were 80 folks there. And we thought, oh, fuck, this thing's really kind of got some legs. So my friend Mike drove to Florida, drove to, I think, Tampa, bought a wrestling ring at a flea market, and then drove back. We got a venue at a bar and uh, put on a show at a bar. We got a trainer, got the whole kit and caboodle. Anyway, fla- uh, flash forward uh, five years, which is insane <laughs> to me, and we're putting on shows for about 2,000 people in a brewery warehouse that yeah. we kind of squat in. Um, we do them quarterly. 
Uh, our wrestling is pretty good. We've got a couple of guys that, like actually perform in the indies. Um, the concepts are, well, here's an example. One of our big bad guys is Bench Horse, a horse that can bench press. That's terrifying <laughs> because uh, the world bench press record was set by a 300-pound man, and the average horse weighs 2,000 pounds. So if a horse could bench press, it would be America's most unstoppable killing machine. Yeah, and unlike you or I, horses don't have a conventional sense of morality. Horses don't know what's right or wrong. Yeah. All they know is blood. Uh, and so this, this, <laughs> this horse is a, is, is a wrecking ball that uh, slaughters anybody in its path. Uh, we've got Skip Rathbone, a legally human game show host. We've got Hot Dog, a crust punk. Uh, we've got all kinds of... Uh, uh, um, We've got uh, Alexandra Cage, who's like a black exploitation character. Who's, who uh, her, sh- her shtick is that she's uh, doing it for the kids, fighting for the, for the local oh, neighborhood, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> she's got a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire. Um, <laughs> she kicks ass, um, shit like that. Cool. Um, we yeah, we put on these big shows where we hurt ourselves for entertainment. Everyone gets drunk. We've got a lot of lore, um, a lot of deep mythology, and uh, the party fucking rules. I love it, man. I'll uh, hopefully I'll, I'll, one of these days when I'm down in Austin. Yeah, check out pwr.website. Hell yeah. Um, my final question is this: You're a metal guy, right? Yes. What are you listening to lately? Oh shit! I was listening to. Let me take a look. What I was listening to on the way up. <laughs> okay. I'm not. I'm not the biggest metal guy, but I, uh, I I try to dip my toes into it now and then. I'm, I'm more of a. I'm, I'm close, but I'm more of a goth like post punk. Oh yeah, for sure, and that's yeah. important and good. I like that too. Yeah, um, Boy Harsher is, is I think my band of the year, and that's like in the Ooh. goth post punk category. Cool. Um, on the way up here, I was listening to Blade Killer, which there's, there's like this trend right now of bands that are kind of like trying to recapture the music of bands from the '80s. I saw Iron Maiden in concert on the 27th of July, and uh, it fucking ruled. It fucking kicked ass. Yeah. Um, so Blade Killer sounds a lot like uh, Maiden's guitars. Oh, cool. Uh, which I think is rad. Um, if you want the best, I think like leftist metal, there's two bands that come to mind. One is Dawn Raid, uh, R A Y apostrophe D, which is a British um, anti-fascist anarcho like uh, black metal band. Cool. They're extremely good. They write songs about like killing Nazis and shit, which is good. Yeah, badass. Um, along with like a Neckbeard Death Camp, who are a little bit, who are a little bit, little bit, little bit of a harsher sound, but they rule. But uh, I think the king of it all is this guy in, I think Minneapolis, named Panopticon. And he put together an album called Kentucky, which is a combination of bluegrass and black metal, which is way better than, I, than it sounds, I promise. <laughs> which is all about Kentucky coal miner strikes. Uh, he's got samples of like old like protest uh, protest songs. Oh, he's got bits shit. of interviews. The album is extremely good. Uh, it is peerless black metal and also explicitly leftist, which rules. That rules. Yeah. I didn't know that was Check a it out. thing at all. You will fucking love it. It, uh, <laughs> uh, it is. Uh, even my friends that don't like black metal uh, get into that album. Yeah, that sounds like it would probably be a good entryway for me because I do uh, I do like listening to leftist music, but it almost exclusively seems to be folk punk and i am uh i think i've listened to every iteration of that pat the bunny band and yeah, I, I, yeah. I can't do it no more i need, uh, need check some. out check out panopticons kentucky you will uh, you will not regret it that cool. dude fucking rules hell yeah i love it all right man well thank you very much uh for coming on the show and um plug anything you need to uh yeah, where, sure. where people can find you my book is called health justice now and you can see that at healthjusticenow.com uh, my Twitter account is Krulge, C-R-U-L-G-E. It's a nonsense word. I tweet about healthcare and wrestling, and then whatever, like, horseshit earnest thing I'm feeling at the time. 
Uh, sorry in advance, but it's, it's good content. <laughs> also got a newsletter, tinyletter.com slash error, E-R-R-O-R. I got an early username and didn't really think about it. Where I send out about a monthly newsletter about health policy and things that uh, I'm interested in. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, y'all. That is uh, the episode for this week. I don't know when this will come out because I will probably be on the road. But um, I guess for me, look at my tour dates are on my website and my pinned tweet. And that's probably it. Oh, right. same. Look at my tour dates and my pinned tweet. Oh, right. All right. We got the same. Oh, yeah. and, the, uh, and the same guy made our flyer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Shout out to uh, Rory Blank, my uh, favorite fucking illustrator right now. Uh, at Piss Castle. We all have such great uh, t- ats on Twitter. <laughs> all right. That's it.